what's going on? Welcome back to Vantage Point Podcast, where we bring insight, keys, and perspective to everyday living through the lens of God. I'm your host, Nick, and I thank you. Thank you for tuning in. I hope you've been blessed by our current series, and if so, please continue to share, like us, subscribe, post on your social media. Uh, This series has been amazing. We're tackling the letters to the churches in the book of Revelation, and we're going to jump right in uh, to this next episode, episode four. And as I mentioned, or may not have mentioned, the series is called To Whom It May Concern, Letters to the Church. And again, our focus has been on Revelation chapter two, where we're reading through these letters that John wrote, inspired through Jesus, uh, to the seven churches of that time. And, And what we're finding in this series is that while these words refer the churches of those days past, the principles and lessons are very much relevant for today in our world. And not again, we've been saying it um, every week, but not just the physical church building, but the organism, us as the body of Christ, as the church body. And, and for our first week, we looked at the church of Ephesus. Week two, we covered the church of Smyrna. Our third episode, we looked at the church of Pergamon. And this episode, episode four, we're going to focus on the church of Thy, Thy, Thyatira. I'm going to have some trouble saying that one, hopefully not, but church, the church of Thyatira. And one thing to note before we jump into the scripture is that this church was the smallest and some would even call it the kind of most unimportant uh, city or church that Jesus spoke to. Um, one elder specifically said about this city that Thyatira and other unimportant cities. Like, it's interesting that this seemingly is an insignificant church of all the seven, but Jesus actually had the most to say to them. This is actually the longest letter of the seven. And so it's interesting, the smallest church gets the longest letter. So let's jump right in, right? How does Jesus address them? So we're going to jump right in. This uh, letter starts at Revelation 2, verse 18, and it reads, write this letter to the angel of the church in Thyatira. This is the message from the Son of God, whose eyes are like flames of fire, whose feet are like polished bronze. I know all the things you do. I've seen your love, your faith, your service, and your patient endurance. And I can see your constant improvement in all these things. But I have this complaint against you. You are permitting that woman, that Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet, to lead my servants astray. She teaches them to commit sexual sin and to eat food offered to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she does not want to turn away from her immorality. Therefore, I will throw her on a bed of suffering, and those who commit adultery with her will suffer greatly unless they repent and turn away from her evil deeds. I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am the one who searches out the thoughts and intentions of every person. And I will give each of, give to each of you whatever you deserve. But I also have a message for the rest of you in Thyatira who have not followed this false teaching. Um, deeper truth, as they call them, depths of Satan, actually. I will ask nothing more of you except that you hold tightly to what you have until I come. Those To all who are victorious, who obey me to the very end, to them I will give authority over all the nations. They will rule the nations with an iron rod and smash them like clay pots. They will have the same authority I receive from my father, and I will also give them the morning star. Verse 29 
ends this letter. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. And so to jump right into this, I want to call out the point. I want to call this point out. So last week we talked about the church of Pergamon and it's compromising uh, uh, behavior to culture. This week we're talking about a church who has basically stepped fully in to cultural acceptance. And one writer said this, if the church of Pergamum is an example of the compromising church that is taking the first kiss towards sin, then the church of Thyatira is the church that has completely gone to bed with idolatry and is suffering the life-threatening effects of immorality. And again, if you've been following along with us since the first episode of this series, we've learned, we learn about the city as well as the church. And in each example, we see Jesus give almost every church the same thing. There's a commendation, there's a criticism and a correction, as well as a crown for the ones who overcome. So before we jump into that, let's look at the city of Thyatira. And so first thing I want to call out, it was the headquarters for many ancient guilds, which are basically an association of people with similar interests or pursuits. The potters, the, there were potters, tanners, weavers, robe makers, and dyers, like coloring dye, changing the color of things. Uh, and it was actually the center of the dyeing industry, right? The, the colorization of things. And in even in Acts 16, 14, uh, a woman is mentioned. Her name is Lydia, who sold purple goods or dyed goods. And she actually became Paul's first convert in Europe. But the scripture tells us she was from Thyatira. Apollo, the sun god, thinking of Greek uh, mythology, right, was primarily worshipped there. And, and what's interesting about this particular church and, and, and the scripture and the letter itself is that as we get into the charge against this church, we understand why the letter starts out so boldly, so strongly. Again, remember the quote from, quote from above, Thyatira is compared to a church that has gone full blown in the world and got sucked in. Right. And so let's dig into the beginning of this letter. Verse 18 says, these things says the son of God. These things says the son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet like fine brass. Now, that's a that's a strong introduction to these people. And, and I don't know if it's what they were expecting. Jesus is saying point blank, bottom line, he is the son of God, giving his authoritative place in the Trinity. Then he refers to his eyes, which are like blazing fire, seeing all things that are unseen. His feet are like burnished bronze, like a refining fire melting brass. Like when we when we think about what Jesus is saying here, the fire in his eyes, he's not talking about a passion. He's talking about he sees through the pretense. He sees with eyes of judgment. And and if we're honest, our culture today, probably similarly to back then, we don't like the idea of someone looking at us with judgment. But Jesus's gaze is ultimately to heal, not only to condemn, but it also is to heal. There's a healing. There's a refining that comes as well. And his feet of brass or bronze and bronze biblically is, is symbolic of judgment. It's like when your parents used to call you by your first, middle and last name, right? Like you, you don't know what's coming, but whatever it is, it's going to be bad, right? Like think about that. So why is Jesus coming to judge this church? Let, let's look at 
the commendation first before the criticism in verse 19. Jesus says, I know your works, love, service, faith, and your patience. As far as your works, the last are more than the first, right? And so we look at works, right? The fellowship had hard workers that were known for their actions, not just their belief. Then we look at love. The church of Thyatira, in contrast to Ephesus, had love for many people. In fact, they are the only church that Jesus commended for having love, but we'll get into the downfall of that here shortly. And then when we look at faith, their deeds and love were motivated by their faith in Christ. Their service, this church was heavily involved in ministry and serving other people. And then patience, they endured. They had steadfastness in their walk, in their journey. And then doing more, their latter works exceeded the first, which means there they were growing in their faith, not just resting in what God did for them in the past. They were continuing to press. And, and I look at the church today and I wonder if we can say the same commendation for us. Sure, we have great deeds, love, faith, service, and perseverance, and we're doing more now than ever. But what, what does that necessarily lead to? What does that necessarily mean? And, and when we read this, we, we might think that, oh, wow, this church is doing amazing things. They're powerful. They're in the world. They're changing. They're doing all these things, strong faith, love. And we say that about the church now. But with the commendation also comes a criticism. And, and and that's the thing that where we need to really focus in, not only on this church uh, of Thyatira, but the church as a whole right now. And verse 20 through 23 says, nevertheless, I have found a few things against you because you allow that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophet to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexually Im sexual immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. And I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality, and she did not repent. Indeed, I will cast her into a sickbed and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation, unless they repent of their deeds. I will kill her children with death, and all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts, and I will give to you each, I will give to each one of you according to your work. See, here's the thing. Ephesus was strong in doctrine, but lacked love. Thyatira was strong in love, but lacked strength in their doctrine. They weren't willing to disagree with anyone about their doctrinal heresies or doctrinal preference, right? And one person said this, it's common for churches to be polarized in one of these two extremes. Either they will have full heads and empty hearts or full hearts and empty minds. Either polarization is deadly. God demands both love and sound doctrine. First Timothy 1.5 says this, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Think about it this way. Table salt is a compound. Uh, it's a mixture of two elements, sodium and chloride, right? Both of those elements are poisonous by themselves, right? Too much sodium can be deadly. Too much chloride can be deadly. But when you put them together, they become sodium chloride, common table salt. And we can put doctrine and love 
in this same illustration. They must be found together. One without the other leads to a dangerous imbalance, a dangerous, uh, a, a dangerous, deadly to people that we come in contact with. But combined, they provide the flavor and health that the body of Christ needs, right? And, and some would say this church was strong on love and weak on doctrine, but think about the, the definition, right? Because if we understand love correctly, would we really say they loved too much, right? And, and I, what I believe is that they bought into the lie that says you can love someone without truth, right? But love without truth isn't love, it's infatuation. And, and it's, it's a concession, it's masqueraded hatred, right? Because if I truly, truly love someone, I'm not gonna withhold the truth from them, which would lead, which would lead to their destruction. If I do that, that means that I'm indeed loving or I'm loving myself and my comfort, but I'm not truly loving the other person. Jesus said that the church in Thyatira tolerated Jezebel. And I want to point out that Jezebel here is a symbolic name, right? And we can go back to first Kings where, where we meet the actual Jezebel, right? And if you remember King Ahab back in first Kings was, was the most evil and dirty and demonic King that ever reigned in Israel. He was married to this woman named Jezebel. And as soon as he married her, Ahab began to serve and worship Baal, a, for, a false god. Jezebel led people to commit sexual immorality and, and offer their food to idols. Ahab, toward the end of his life, heard what God had to say and had to change and had to shift. But as long as he was with Jezebel, and you can read about it in 1 Kings 21, he was tempted to sin against the Lord. Right. And Jesus said that Jezebel was committing sexual immorality and was teaching and seducing people to do the same. So Jezebel, in a sense, represents things in our lives that lead to idolatry, to worshiping things instead of God. Right. And so Jesus is saying is graciously giving her time to repent. He's graciously giving us all time to repent. Right. And like Ahab had time and actually did repent. But will we will the church. Right. And yet this Jezebel in Thyatira didn't change her ways. So he would, so Jesus would cast her into a sick bed. Notice that he says that people who commit adultery with her will also face consequences. Jesus said that if he, if they did not repent, they would eventually die. And notice he says, all will know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts. Literally, he's saying that he, what he's saying, and if you think about ancient Jew, ancient uh, Jewish tradition and custom, means the heart and kidneys. And, and see, in that culture, the heart was the seat of intellect, and the kidneys were a centerpiece of emotion. He's saying, I know every thought and feeling you have. Because see, the chief problem with the church of Thyatira was that they tolerated Jezebel's doctrine. Ephesus was commended back in verse two for, for not tolerating wicked men, but testing those who claim to be apostles, but are not and have found them false. Thyatira is criticized for allowing the sinful doctrine and heresy into the body of Christ. So that while they get a lot of A's and a lot of good jobs in a lot of areas, the one area that made them flunk the test in a word, the church was tolerant. And first, let's break down some things they were tolerant of. First, it was a desire to fit in with the culture, right? How does a church that is solid suddenly become tolerant of cultural 
doctrine, right? And it isn't always sudden, right? We're 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 growing up in a culture that embraces postmodern modernism. What is that? It's a whole system that basically teaches that we can't really know anything for sure and truth changes. As long as you believe it personally enough, it's true for you. In other words, there's no absolute right or wrong. If you can't allow me to believe what I believe, you're a racist or a bigot and you're intolerant. Right. And I love this quote from Alan Bloom. It says openness and the relativism that makes it only plausible stance makes it the only plausible stance in the face of various claims to truth and various ways of life and kinds of human beings is the great insight of our times. The true believer is the real danger. The study of history and of culture teaches that all of the world was mad in the past. Men always thought they were right. And that led to wars, persecution, slavery, xenophobia, racism, and chauvinism. The point is not to correct the mistakes and really be right. Rather, it is not to think you are right at all. Right. And a second way was a failure to rightly define sin. Right. We you think about culture today. Do we really use the word sin anymore? Right. And and what do we use it in the lawlessness, rebellion, treason, spiritual adultery, breaking God's law? That is sin. Right. And, and here's the here's a textbook definition of sin. It's an immoral act against God. That's it. Right. But we want to start using new words that don't sound so offensive because, you know, sin is offensive to people. And we we want to you know, we don't want to we don't want to offend anybody these days. So we we say words like struggle or disease or disorder when when we not only wrongly define sin, we attempt to create a sin hierarchy. Right. We want to take certain sins and place them above or below other sins and then create a threshold or an allowance of sinful acts. And from there, we ultimately become tolerant of quote unquote little sin and fully disgusted and off put toward quote unquote larger sin. And and last time I checked, sin is sin is sin, right? It's all level playing field at the foot of the cross. So when, when your tolerance levels begin to dwindle, we become susceptible to allowing church or excuse me, to allow sin into our homes and into our church and into our minds, right? And a third one is forsaking absolute truth for relativism. Uh, relativism. There's that word again. So Christians still believe in absolute truth, right? So let me share some statistics uh, from a Barna research group. It says only 44% of born again adults are certain that absolute moral truth exists. It also says that only 9% of born again teenagers be, get, believe in absolute moral truth. So think about this, and I want you to listen to this quote. It says, now tolerance means that you must not say that anybody is wrong. You have to say that all positions are equally valid. And, and let me stop there for a second, right? Absolute truth is truth. There, We have the word of God. It is truth. Right. And what ultimately is happening as we as we move into this modernism or or progressivism or whatever we want to call it, we we want to have it be okay that everybody has a certain level of truth. Right. But we all get into the habit of denying the one truth, the truth, the word of God. Right. And we know what it says, but we even take the word of God. And by these statistics, we can even see that born again adult Believers in Christ still question absolute moral truth. That's where we are headed in our world. Another way to look at it is moving 
closed-handed issues into open-handed ones. See, Christians believe that there are open-handed issues and closed-handed, and we must never begin to open the closed-handed business issues for debate. And I'm gonna give you an example. In business leadership, I call these things non-negotiables, right? In other words, there are specific tenants, rules, expectations that are not up for debate, right? They're not up for challenges. They're not up for compromising. They're not up for tolerating. It is a non-negotiable in my book, right? And one example would be attendance, tardiness, right? Being on time is a non-negotiable. There's no debate. Yes, things happen and you communicate that. We get that. But to be habitually late or to be habitually um, absent is non-negotiable, right? And so we have to, in our faith, have the same fundamental biblical doctrine that there are some things in this world that are non-negotiable, right? And we have to stand firm on that. That doesn't mean we don't love you. That doesn't mean we don't, um, you know, have pray for you. That doesn't mean that. But we have to stand firm as Christians on the non-negotiable tenets of the word of God, right? And so we have to do those things because if we don't do those things, those then foundational truths, we allow them to be questioned and then those questions are considered and then suppositions get formed and then those turn into arguments and before we know it, we have been turned on our heads and we take something that was a non-negotiable spiritual doctrine of God and now we don't even believe it anymore. We question it and those are things we cannot do and I love Love this C.S. Lewis quote, and it says, an open mind in questions that are not ultimate is useful, but an open mind about ultimate foundations, either of theoretical or practical reason is idiocy. If a man's mind is open on these things, let his mouth at least be shut. Many scholars believe that Jezebel was encouraging the church to join the trade guilds of Thyatira, even though that would mean giving honor to the guild god or goddesses, which included participating in festivals where they were serving food to idols or sacrificing food to idols. She wanted the church to embrace the world, even if that meant fully compromising their beliefs to reach people with quote unquote love. And the last one is failing to take a stand for truth. What does the Bible say about how we should react to heresy? Here are a few verses. First, Timothy 6, 20 and 21 says, Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to your care. Turn away from godless chatter and the opposing ideas of what is falsely called knowledge, which some have professed and in so doing have wandered from the faith. 1 Timothy 4, 7, have nothing to do with godless myths or old wives' tales. Re rather, train yourself to be godly. Titus 1, 10 through 13, for there are many rebellious people full of meaningless talk and deception, especially those of the circumcision group. They must be silenced, rebuke them sharply so that they will be sound in their faith. Titus 3, 9, but avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and arguments and quarrels about the law because these, these are unprofitable and useless. Did you catch how Paul instructs us to what to do with heretic doctrine and those who teach it? Turn away, have nothing to do with it, silence them, rebuke them, avoid their teaching. Kind of the opposite of what the word tolerate means, right? And see, I, I really feel like we're in danger of doing the same things, tolerating a bunch of 
non-ungodly beliefs because like the church of Thyatira, we're too scared or too loving to speak the truth. We're afraid we'll lose friends or the argument. So we sit idly by and consider other positions and allow ignorance and even heresy to infiltrate the church. Martin Luther King Jr. said it best when he said, there, there comes a time when silence is betrayal. Our lives begin to end the day we become silent about things that matter. And I really feel like the church today can learn and and because learn some things because we, we're sitting in, in a in an age where the church tolerates Jezebel. Maybe we're maybe may, can we boldly possibly stand for truth, absolute truth, keeping the closed hand closed, rightly defining tolerance, stand up for our truth, and even when we stand out. We, we still stand out boldly in the face of culture. Doesn't mean, again, it doesn't mean we don't love people. Doesn't mean we don't deal with the things of this world because we're, we're called to church. We're called to people. We're going to deal with the culture. We're going to deal with the world, but we have to be firm enough to stand on our faith, stand on our belief, stand on our non-negotiables and hit the world head on. Doesn't mean, again, it's not beating them over the head with truth, but we have to combine our truth with love, right? And when we get into correction of the church of Thyatira, it says, now I, now to you, I say, and to the rest of Thyatira, as many as do not have this doctrine, who have not known the depths of Satan, as they say, I will put on you no other burden. See, Jesus calls Jezebel's practice a doctrine. He, he describes it as the depths of Satan. What does that mean? See, Smyrna was attacked by a synagogue of Satan. Pergamum dealt with a throne of Satan that existed, but those churches resisted Satan. Thyatira, on the other hand, has fallen into the deeper things of Satan. Notice in verse 24 that Jesus said this to the rest, right? There were some in the church that wouldn't put up with false teachings. And Jesus says, I put you on no other burden that should be our response. Don't put up with the heresy. Don't put up with the false doctrine and false truth, but hold fast to what you have till I come. See, Jesus doesn't give us any big command or burden. He just says, whatever you already have, hang on to it. I'm not going to lay some heavy command on you because sometimes I think we we, we want to think God has this huge laundry list of do's and don'ts. And, and we just have to hang on, believe what we believe, stand firm, flat footed and, 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 and focus on those things. Just hold the line, as they would say in the military. That's all I need you to do. Don't let go. I'm not laying any more weight on you than you already have. And I know some listening to this, you might be struggling with holding on. You might be struggling with holding the line. But I'm encouraging you, continue to hold fast, continue to, to press, continue to believe what you believe because Jesus is coming quickly. And for those in Thyatira with sound theology, nothing more is needed. Just hang on to the truth and love your and love and your love of Jesus. And notice the reward that he gives them. And he who overcomes and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give power over the nations. He shall rule them with a rod of iron. They shall be dashed to pieces like the potter's vessels, as I have also received from my father. 
See, Jesus references Psalm 2, another reference to judgment. In Thyatira, there was a big pottery guild. And Jesus is saying he will give us authority like he, like he was given from the Father to rule over the nation. See, we don't need to be afraid of what some minorities that that is on the losing team, right? We don't have to be afraid of that. We've been given authority and the truth we will win in the end. Jesus has all authority and those who oppose his authority will be crushed in judgment. He says, I will give him the morning star. And see, Satan is known as the morning star in one reference. And what Jesus is saying is this world might think it has the brightness and beauty, but I will give the overcomers the true morning star, the judgment and the illumination myself. See, Jesus is referring to himself as the bright star of the morning. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit is saying. And, and something I want you to point out, the, the name Thyatira means sacrifice or sacrificial offering. See, see, they as a church were willing to sacrifice their faith on the altar of compromise. And what began as a small compromise into a little bit of doctrine, false doctrine, became the sacrificing truth in order to accept others, abandoning what is true for what is convenient. See, the reality is truth is found not in a principle, but in a person. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And just minutes before being crucified, Jesus said to Pilate, John 18, 37, 38, for this purpose I was born and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? Imagine that. The one who had the words of truth better than that was filled with the spirit of truth better than that, embodied the belt of truth, the one, unlike Moses, through whom the law came, who was incarnate in the world, bearing grace and truth better than that. He was the truth, was standing right in front of the pilot, who in a single question dismissed the discussion with a wave of his hand. There aren't multiple ways to God. There is only one way, and his name is Jesus. There is one way that he is the door. He is the bright morning star. Rather than sacrifice truth on the altar of acceptance like this church of Thyatira, Jesus was instead betrayed, cast out, and nailed to a tree. He made the ultimate sacrifice so that we could know the truth. My question is, do you know the truth? Do you know Jesus? Do you have ears to hear him in this moment? See, church history records that by the second century, this church of Thyatira was no longer in existence. That, what does that tell us? They didn't repent. They didn't heed the words. And that's something for us today as the organism, as the church body. Are we going to hear the words of God? Are, are, are we going to continue to compromise to culture? Are we going to continue to entertain false doctrine? Are we going to entertain what others have said against the word of God? Are we going to keep tolerating sin? Are we going to keep tolerating other culture and other things that come against because eventually those things are like toxins and they're slowly going to kill us one day at a time, one bad decision after another. And my prayer is that we stand up for truth, keep his word to the end and be the church that is known for speaking the truth in love. Let's pray.
Father God, we just come to you today. We give you all the honor and praise. And right now, for everyone listening to the sound of my voice, Father God, I'm praying for their resolve right now, Father God. I'm praying for their strength, Father God, even as they stand in the midst of culture, even as they stand in the midst of of death, of, of compromise, Father God, of, of tolerance, of the culture that we are around, Father God, in this world. Father God, I pray that they lean into you. I pray that they stand flat-footed, focused on your word, Father God, in the midst of everything that they see, that they see one spiritual truth, one way, which is your son, Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for us, Father God, while we were still sinners. Father God, I pray that they embrace the truth, that they run with the truth. And not only do they run with the truth, Father God, but they run with love, Father God, that they combine their truth with love. Father God, I pray for every church that only speaks truth. I pray a supernatural release of love on their hearts, Father God, for every truth, for every church that speaks in love only, Father God. I pray that a supernatural unleashing of truth covers them and consumes them, Father God, where they balance the two as they go win souls for you, Father. Is it in your son's name that we say this and believe and declare? Amen. I thank you all again again, again, for rolling with us another week. Continue to stay tuned. We got four more uh, episodes in this series, and we're going to jump into some more amazing things. Continue to like, subscribe, and share. And as always, keep seeking keys, insight, and perspective to everyday living through the lens of God. It's going to change your world and your life. God bless. Thank you.